What does it mean to be human? Fyodor Dostoevsky once wrote, Every ant knows the formula of its anthill. Every bee knows the formula of its beehive. They know it in their own way, not in our way. Only humankind does not know its formula. Well, what if knowing the formula of what it means to be human was as easy as listening to the creator of humanity? Lord, um, we exalt your name in this place today, and we are overwhelmingly grateful that you are the type of God that invites us to come to you to find rest for our weary souls, and I pray that we would this morning in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. 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 Well, hey, we're glad you're with us today. If um, you weren't here last Sunday, last Sunday we started a new series we're calling This Is Us, and we're exploring the different dimensions and dynamics of what it means to be human. And so we asked the question last week, what, what does it mean to be human? And we said, there's a lot of things that are attached to the, how we answer that question. But, but we wanted to say, all right, let's just look at the scriptures and let's read them and let's see what God says about what it means to be human. So last week we started in the book of Genesis and we looked at Genesis 1 and 2 and we, we said, listen, we're not going to discuss so much about the, the, the how and the when of God's creation, but, but the, the why and the who, the that who created is important and that why he created is important, that, that that's really the story that Genesis is, is telling us. And so we said, here's what it means to be human. It means four things. It means recognizing that we are created beings. It means realizing that we carry the image of God. It means coming to the awareness that we are both breath and dust, that we are a flesh and spirit, soul and body, not one or the other, but, but both, and that we were designed to commune with the creator, that we were designed to walk with God. And so we answered the question, what does it mean to be human, sort of on a, on a fundamental level, on a, on a base level, but we didn't answer the question, how do we live as human beings? We created, essentially, the platform to stand on, but this morning what I want to talk about is, how do we really walk in our designed humanity? What are the things that we do? What's the, the meaning of life? I mean, people have been asking that question for ages. We, we certainly are human beings, but we also are human doings. We do things as people. We wake up in the morning and we have to spend our time doing something. And the doing reflects just as much as the being about what it means to be human, what it means to be a created by God person walking the planet. So I wanted to propose the question this morning, what's the meaning of life? And in order to answer that, I did what every red-blooded American would do. I Googled it. <laughs> well, actually, first, first, I asked Siri, my phone. Here's the way Siri answered it. She has a few different answers for me. Um, Siri said, all the data that exists points to chocolate. That's the meaning of life. <laughs> there, you, there you have it. Here's another one of Siri's answers. I can't answer that right now, but give me some time to write a play which is about nothing. 
That was another one of her answers for us. She also answered me by saying, I think there's an app for that. <clears throat> so then I Googled it, and here's what I found on Google. I found a picture. It's a comic. It's a man praying, meeting with God, and he says, I want to know the meaning of life. And God says back to him, have you tried Googling it? <laughs> Which gets us into circular reasoning, does it not? Right? All that to say, it's not exactly a simplistic question to answer, is it? What is the meaning of life? How should we view the however many years God gives us? What should we, what should we do with those years? What should, our, what should our days look like? Is there a design for the way that we would use the time that God has given us. And I want to posit that there is, and that we can find that answer in the first two chapters of the scripture's book of beginnings, or Genesis. Would you, if you have a Bible, would you open to Genesis chapter 1 with me? Genesis chapter 1. And after creating the heavens and the earth, and we're on day six of this creation narrative, listen to what God says. It says, and then God said, let us, which we'll come back to, make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heaven, over the livestock, over all of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. My mom had an ardent prayer that she used to tell me she prayed for me. It wasn't that I would find the person, the girl of my dreams, which anecdotally I did. It wasn't that I would flourish in life, although I believe that I am. Her prayer over me was that I would have a son that was like me. <laughs> that was her prayer. And I want to tell you this morning, her prayer has been answered and he's driving me crazy. Because he's exactly like me. We go to meet with his teachers for parent-teacher conferences. And every year, all three years, same exact conference, different teachers. They say the same thing. Ethan has a lot of energy, which is code word for he's out of control sometimes, right? That's a, that's a teacher's way of saying this kid has um, the ability to ruin my class some days. And, and, and he does. Um, he is what we like to call strong-willed. He's type A, which means in our family, this is what it means, that if we have a day where nothing's planned, Ethan will plan the day for us. It also means that if he doesn't like the plan, he will propose a better one, and he will do whatever he can to make sure his plan is executed. You know who that reminds me of? Me. Me. Um, not only that, but, but he looks like me. I mean, he's got the same calic in his hair. He, he's got the same eyes. The dude is a mini-me. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, bro, but this is your future. 
He's created in my image. And here's the thing, here's the thing, here's the thing. You may or may not be created in your parents' image, but you certainly are created in your God's image. The scriptures are really clear. Four times in the first chapter of Genesis, the scriptures say that you were created in the image of the almighty God. Now, the question we have to come to or we have to answer is, what does that mean? mean? It certainly does not mean that God has this part in his hair and this calic that sticks straight up because God is spirit. So what what does it mean to be created in the image of God? Well, I want to propose to you that the answer to that question is also the answer to the meaning of life. Just let that sit on you for a second. That the way that we answer, what does it mean to be created in the image of God, is also the way that we answer, what does it mean to be human in the way that we live and what we do? And I'll say it as strongly as this this morning, that knowledge of the image of God in us leads to flourishing for us. That if we start to come to an awareness of, God, this is what you've designed me to be like, and this is your God-given, innate, soul-level calling on my life. That if we come to a knowledge or an awareness or a recognition of this image of God in us and, and all that it means for us, we are then positioned to, des- to flourish and to live. It allows us to live with clarity. It allows us to live with, with deep meaning, and purpose. It allows us to live in truth or in alignment with the way that God has not only created us, but shaped and formed the world for our inhabiting. All of these things are attached to what it means to be created in the image of God. Mark Twain, the great author, said this. He said, the two most important days in your life are the day that you were born and the day that you find out why? And I want to at least give you the Bible's answer for why this morning. What does it mean to be created in the image of God? And I, I, I'm going to propose that the scriptures give us in the first two chapters of Genesis at least three things that it means. At least three things. So in Genesis chapter 1 that we just looked at, verse 26 and 27, we see that God has just created the heavens and the earth. He's created the sun and the moon. He's created the, the earth to give birth to plants. He calls them out of the earth, animals, creatures, all sorts of things. And then what he says about humanity is, you've been created in the image of God. Now, if we're reading through this text, the main thing that we know about God thus far is that he is creative. That's at the base level. If we just read along, he created stars and moon, heaven and earth, humanity, everything in the world. The main thing we know about God when he tells us we're created in his image is that he is a creative being. And you know one of the main things it means to be created in the image of God is that you were created to create. That's what it means to be created in God's image. 
You, you don't have to be a rocket scientist to figure out that that statement about being created in his image follows a majestic retelling of God's creative magnificence. And he places something similar in you. You see, human beings aren't mass-produced. You know that God doesn't have an assembly line where he just cranks them out one after another, Model T style. No, you are an individual created being of the most high God and instilled within you is the desire to create in the same way that your God creates. Now, there's some limiting factors to our creative prowess, certainly, that God does not have. Mainly, that God is able to create ex nihilo, which means out of nothing. You may have noticed you don't have that same ability. So it's not exactly like God, but it's with this same desire and with this same longing to make something of the world that God has created. And so, if this is right, if this is true, if this is correct, we should be able to see at least someplace in this creation narrative, humanity being called to be creative. Flip over one chapter to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2 says this. So this is um, God's creation of Adam. Adam is in the garden, and this is what it says. And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone, I will make him a helper fit for him. Now, out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field, every bird of the heavens, and he brought them to man to see what he would call them. Whatever he called every living creature, that was its name. So notice what's going on here. God creates Adam, places him in this paradise-type garden, and he gives him the task. Adam, I'm going to parade in front of you every being that I've created, and I want you, Adam, to give it a name. Now, here's the question. Could God have just named the animals? Yeah, sure. He could have done that in a number of different ways. He could have said to Adam, um, okay, here's the dictionary. And I want you to just to look at the picture that I've put in there. And when it comes by, you call it that, Adam. But he doesn't do that. God actually creates space for Adam to look at his creation and to name it. To, to speak into the things that God has created. And to play a part, even though God could have done this a number of different ways, God is creating space for humanity, his image bearers, to begin to grow into the vast cosmic purpose that he has disclosed in Genesis chapter 1. He's perfectly capable of doing this on his own, but he invites you to be a part of it. Now, before we go further, let me just ask you, does your view of who God is have space for your creative, innately creative desires and capabilities? A lot of us have this cumbersome view of God, where he's like watching Adam name the animals, and he's in the background going, certainly would have called, wouldn't have called it that. Or rhinoceros, that's going to be long to write for a really long time. Or giraffe, why in the world would you call it that, Adam? I mean, 
A lot of us, our view of God is that he's sort of looking on going, well, I wouldn't have done that, but I guess since I gave you the calling to do it, I'm going to have to go with that. I think God looks on and goes, huh, interesting, huh, brilliant, huh, that's, that's what I created you for, Adam. What does it mean to be creative? It means to live in God's world in a way where we take the material that God has created and we add to it our imagination and our dreams and our hopes and our thoughts. And what pops out is a new way of imagining the world. What pops out is creativity. God's resources plus your imagination equals creativity. That's exactly what Sherry's doing to my left. She's taking God's resources and she's taking her thoughts and she's putting it on a canvas. That's the creative act happening in front of us. It's a calling from God. It's an invitation from God. And you don't have to continue to read too far before we see this starting to develop at a more rapid pace in the book of Genesis. If you have a Bible, you can turn over just one more page. If not, you can follow along with me on the screen. It says, in, and these are descendants from Adam and Cain, Adabor Jabal, and he was the father of those who dwell in tents and have livestock. So we start to see this um, creative ability taking place in forming and shaping the way that human beings live. And his brother's name was Jubal, which makes us ask the question, there weren't too many people living on the face of the earth at this point in time, why choose names that are that close together? I mean, seriously, do you really feel the need to go with this strict of a theme in the naming? Okay, that's just a whole nother thing. Okay. But if you do decide to name your kids things that have, names that have very similar, um, or that have the same letter, you have biblical grounding for that. Okay. That's either here nor there. And Jubal, not to confuse with Jubal, he was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. So Genesis 4, we see the creation of music. It's pretty early on, is it not? God's material plus human imagination equals the lyre and the pipe and a, probably a bunch of moms and dads going, can you please stop that? Please, dear Lord, please stop. Okay. Zillah also bore Tubal, which is strikingly similar to Jubal. Just point that out. Okay. Cain. And he was the forger of all instruments or tools of bronze and iron. Genesis chapter 4. Creation of the way that we dwell together in community. Incipient forms of music and art. And then tools, the way that we eventually start to make things out of the world that God has made. All because God has placed deep inside of us the longing, the desire, or even the need to be creative. My wife and I occasionally will watch this show, um, Fix Your Upper where this couple will go into an old home and, and, and then the whole story sort of built around them showing another couple who's the buyer the home and the home is just trashed or, and it's, it's not worth living in at that point in time. But what they do is this creative couple, they bring another couple into the home and they paint a picture of what it could be like. 
And sometimes the purchasing couple looks at the home and goes, I just can't see it. And sometimes they look at it and go, oh yeah, that, I, could, I could see that taking place. The ability to see it, quote unquote, is a creative act. But I think a lot of humanity falls into the category of, I just can't see it. Because let me just do, let me do a, a quick sort of straw poll survey. How many of you look at what Sherry's doing right now and think, I could never do that? Okay, yeah, so I'm there too. I'm, I'm with you. My hand's just not, not in the air as an illustration. My hand is in the air because I don't think I could not do that. But my kids, your, your kids, if they're under the age of 10, would look at that painting and go, oh, sure, I could do that. You've never met a second grader who didn't think they were an artist. And something happens to us as we, quote unquote, mature. Something happens to us as we, as we grow and become more developed, quote unquote. We lose this ability. Aaron McManus, pastor, author, says it like this. He says, I've come to realize, after 30 years of studying human creativity, that the great divide is not between those who are artists and those who are not, but between those who understand that they are creative and those who have become convinced that they are not. Which category do you fall into? And I'm not just talking about creativity and art or music. I'm talking about making something of the world that God has invited you to live in. So you see, but here's the problem. Here's the problem. Something happens to us at the end of um, elementary school. That's a completely unscientific number, but somewhere around there. Here, here's, what, here's what happens. What's that? Fourth grade. Fourth grade. That's scientific because it comes from Sherry, okay? <laughs> here's what happens to us. Let, let me give you four things that start to happen. We start to compare. We start to look at what somebody else does, and if we can't do it either as good as they can or in the same way that they can, the narrative we start to tell ourselves is, if I can't do it as good as them, I'm not good at it. And we start to compare, and we start to shut down. Secondly, the, the shame that many of us have deep within our souls prevents us from inviting people in. And creation, creating is a deeply personal, intimate act. Because even as Sherry paints on stage, she's showing us something about who she is. There's this great book written a number of years ago called Art and Fear, and it ties together these ideas that when we create, we reveal parts of the, the most intimate parts of who we are, which is why many of us shut down because we don't want to be known. The third thing is, it's, it's so much easier, and I owe this point to a, a preacher named Andy Stanley. He says, we are so adept at asking, the word, at asking how when people propose an idea, rather than saying, wow. So if we got better as the church at say, people would say, listen, I have this plan to um, eradicate world hunger, our first question back is, How? Well, maybe we need to get better at saying, wow, and creating space 
for people to work out the how. In our rationalistic modernity, we've become so focused on the execution that we have killed some of the dreams. It squelches creativity. Here's the fourth thing that I'll give you. The reason that many of us aren't creative anymore is because it's so much easier to be the critic than it is to be the creative. I mean, think of the way that even as followers of Jesus, we interact with culture, quote unquote. We're known, I don't know if you know this, we are known for lobbing grenades at culture. We're the most ardent critics of culture. And I'm not saying that we shouldn't be discerning, but what I'm saying is that instead of being critical in our discerning, we should be creative. Instead of saying that's not a good way, we should be proposing a better way. And isn't that what the early church did? The early church was beautifully creative. I mean, read through Acts chapter 2. The early church is seen as saying, what if, what if, what if? This is a dream. This is a, a, a canvas that certainly there's something on, but they were grabbing a new paintbrush. What if we created a way of living and being in the empire of Caesar that did not bow the knee to Caesar? What if we created the culture where everybody had enough? What if, instead of bowing the knee to Caesar, we bowed the knee to Jesus and we developed this rhythm of gathering together in homes and celebrating life and breaking bread and eating together and praying? What if, what if, what if? The early church is a spirit-driven, creative act God invites you and I to walk into. So I think one of the questions as we realize that we were created to create is, what are the things that stir your heart? What are the problems in the world that keep you up at night? What are the things God would ask you to to speak into? Your words are one of the most creatively powerful tools that you hold. Your words can create a different marriage. Your words can create a different relationship with your kids. Your words can create different rhythms and meaning with your friends and the the peer groups that you have. You have creative power even in the words that you say. What's the dream God's placed in your heart? What stirs your heart? You were created to create. What's the material God's placed in front of you? And what's the dream that God has put within you? And then, create with it. It's one of the most humane things that you can do. But wait, there's more. Genesis chapter 1, will you flip back with me? Genesis chapter 1, verse 28. And God blessed them. This is the humanity that he created. And God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. It literally means um, to to reign over it is what have dominion over it means. But to subdue it it means to, to keep it under control. Subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves along the earth. God then um, repeats this same calling to Adam in Genesis chapter 2 verse 15. 
And God took the man, this is Adam, and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So from the very beginning, we see humanity created to create, and we see humanity wired to work. Humanity created to create and wired to work. Now, certainly, in the creation narratives that were present during the time of the writing of Genesis, they would have had an understanding that human beings were created in order to work, but a very different understanding than the way that Genesis portrays this. For example, in the Enuma Elish, which was around at this time, human beings were created by the god, quote-unquote, lowercase g, god Marduk. And Marduk created human beings in order to work so that the gods could rest. As if the gods are up in heaven going, man, I'm really exhausted here. You know what I need? I need somebody to change the channel on the TV for me. I need somebody to get me an iced tea. You know what we should do? Create human beings so that they can do that kind of stuff for us. Which isn't at all the way that Genesis proposes we are invited to work. Our invitation to work is to link arms and partner with God. Not in, the, not in the ex nihilo creation that he is doing in this act of creation in Genesis 1, but in the making something of the world that God has made. Look at the way that Psalm chapter 8, or yeah, Psalm chapter 8, I have Genesis there. It's actually Psalm chapter 8 would repeat this. It's sort of a parallel passage to Genesis chapter 1 and 2. David the psalmist says, When I look at your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have made and you've set in place. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? With just a quick time out. That's a great question, isn't it? God, you created it all. God, you spoke it all into existence. Why would you care about us? And oftentimes that's where the conversation ends. We're so small, God's big. To that I say, Yes and amen. Yet. You have made him human beings. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. Sounds very Genesis-esque, does it not? You have given dominion over the work of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. This dominion word is the calling to both work and to keep. Yes, you were created to create. You were also wired to work. Which goes very contrary to the way that we often operate in the world, does it not? Because work is often seen as a necessary evil rather than a divine blessing. I'll give you a statistic that backs that up. They did a 10-year study in Scotland a number of years ago, and what they found was that you are 20% more likely to have a heart attack on one day of the week than you are at any other day. Any guesses what day you're most likely to have a heart attack on? Monday! Monday! Yeah, not Friday. Friday's like, praise Jesus. Monday's like, oh my goodness, I think I'm going down, right? Why is that? 
We've lost the connection between the God-given design to work as part of his image that's placed inside of us. Let me give you two God-given reasons you work. One is to provide. And that's a really good, healthy thing. It's not the same as it was for Adam. Certainly now there are thorns and thistles and work is difficult, but it's not evil and it's not sinful and it's not wrong because work is the way that you provide for the people around you. If you're an electrician, work is the way that you provide for your family. If you're a teacher, work is the way that you make enough money to to help sustain life. If you're a stay-at-home mom, your work is the way that you provide nurture and character for the kids that God has called you to raise. Work is the way that we provide. If you're out of work, that's one of the reasons it's most difficult is because you have this desire. I want to provide for the people I love. I need to provide for myself. Yeah, yeah. Second reason. So provision is reason number one. Production is number two. It's one of the things that makes work meaningful, that we produce things that are ultimately for the common good. Martin Luther, I, I would proposes one of the best authors on this because he realized in the scripture that the scriptures say that God feeds us, that he provides the bread. And Martin Luther asked the question, well, that bread, last time I checked, does not fall out of the sky. That bread has a process that's attached to it. There's a farmer that tills a field. There's a farmer that scatters seed and waters. There's somebody that goes and picks the grain. There's somebody who takes the grain and who delivers it to the baker. There's the baker who does their job and makes great bread. And then there's somebody who takes the bread and takes it either to a person to purchase or to a store. And did you know, will you look up at me for a second? Every single one of those jobs is attached to God providing bread. And we could do that with every single industry that there is. The divide that we have conjured up between the sacred and the secular, some jobs are holy, some jobs are not. Some jobs are sacred. Being a pastor, a missionary, that's a sacred job. But being an electrician or a teacher or you name it, that's a secular job. I want to tell you, you can't find that anywhere in here. Because all of life is sacred. I want to tell you, the plumber that we had unclog our sink this week, praise Jesus for the sacred calling that he has on his life. Because it all contributes to life being lived in the way that God has called us to. So this, that we, we not only provide, but we produce. And so therefore, our wired to work within us, this nature, or character, image of God within us, it's not so that we can be great or that we can be powerful or that we can achieve. It's participation in the common good for all of humanity. That's why we work. 
And you come tell me your job afterwards and we can dream about how it's connected to the common good that everyone benefits from because I guarantee you it is in some way. So the question then remains, how should we work? We answered why. Provision production. But, but the question is how. Let me give you just three and I'm going to fly over these Three reasons, or three, three ways. We should work hard. Scriptures say that we should work in a, in a way that reflects that we realize we're working as part of God's design and part of God's common good, not just for the good of our boss or the good of our stockholders, the good of our other employees. But we're working for God. If you don't have a good work ethic, Please, 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 please don't tell people at your workplace you're a Christian. I'm serious. Don't. Because if you're a terrible worker and you want to flaunt the name of Jesus and quote unquote preach the gospel, I want to tell you those two things are bumping heads with each other. Because you were designed to create or to work in a way that reflects that you know you're working for God. Work hard and then tell people that you're a follower of Jesus. Yeah, but don't do it and be late every day. Okay, second, work hard. And this is similar, strive for excellence. Someone once asked Martin Luther how the Christian shoemaker should do their job. He said, should the Christian shoemaker put little crosses on all of the shoes which is, that's typically the way we think about being a Christian in the workplace, right? And he says, no, 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 no. The Christian shoemaker should do their job by making really good shoes. That's what they should do. You, you want to know how a Christian pilot should do his job? Land the plane. Land the plane. It's the best thing you can do as a follower of Jesus if you're a pilot. Land the plane. Land it safely. So we work hard, we strive for excellence, and third, we work with rhythm. This is built into the Genesis narrative, that as human beings, we need both work and we need rest. We need to strive and we need to sleep. Harvard Business Review, a number of years ago, did a study on sleep deprivation in the workplace, and they named it as one of the main productivity killers in your job place. And some of you, the best thing that you could do for your work life is get some sleep. Serious. That's just, studies are showing this. We were created, built into the fabric of creation is the need for both striving and sleeping. A rhythm of rest and work and taking time, as the book of Ecclesiastes will invite us to, taking time to celebrate all that God has done. Behold, the author of Ecclesiastes says, what I've seen to be good and fitting is to eat and drink and find enjoyment in the, all the toil with which one toils under the sun at the days of his life that God has given him, for that is his lot. So take, take time. You're not going to avoid work, but you can take time to step back and taste of the fruit of your labor, and you should. And that's God-given that's placed in front of you. See, 
creation or being created to create answers the question or asks the question, what will I make? Being wired for work asks the question, what will I contribute? How will I be a part of the story that God is telling through all of humanity in this progress from the garden to the city that the whole meta-narrative of Scripture is found within? Finally, and then the Lord God said, it is not good that man should be alone and I will make a helper fit for him. This is one of the passages that I think we sometimes glaze over from a theological standpoint. Because notice what's going on here. Notice the scene and the setting. Adam created by God perfectly, set in the Garden of Eden to walk with God intimately. This is before sin enters the world. This is before the fall. God looks at Adam and he looks at all the things that he's created, the heavens, the earth, the stars, the trees, the animals, and he looks at him and he goes, listen, okay, Adam, even with all of that, even with, even with, even with me, you are, say it with me, church, alone. So, so here's the equation in Genesis. This is going to sound heretical, but just you got to lay it over the text. You plus God is not enough. We sing songs like, Christ is enough for me. Right? Great song. I'm starting to question if it's good theology. And certainly anything without God is never enough. Ever. But there's something about being human that says... We need relationships. That God didn't create you to just go live on the top of a mountain and commune with him. Now certainly, communion with him is essential to what it means to be human. We talked about that last week. You are created to commune with your creator. That's distinctly and deeply ingrained in the fabric of what it means to be human. But it's not enough. It's not enough. So God creates Adam and creates Eve, so that they can have relationship with one another. Because we all know the words of Simon and Garfunkel, while they make great poetry and a good song, they just don't ring true. I'm a rock. I've built walls, a fortress steep and mighty that no one may penetrate. I have no need of friendship. Friendship causes pain. It's laughter and it's loving I disdain. I'm a rock. I am an island. And that is a lie. (laughs) Because you were created to create, you were wired for work, and you were formed for friendship. And we're going to look at this formed for friendship, formed for relationship, formed for love. Over the next few weeks, we're going to branch off our study and just zoom in on this because it's really what Genesis chapter, the second half of Genesis chapter 2 is made up of in Genesis chapter 3. But I want to say, what I want to say about it today is that being a carrier of the image of God distinctly means being a communal being because the image that we carry is of a communal God. Let us 
make man in our image. Father, Son, and Spirit inviting humanity into the dance that they have been doing before creation was even a blip on the radar. That we are invited into the Godhead, not to be gods, but to partake of the divine nature and deep within us is this need for other people. Why? Because God, in his very nature, is a communal being. God is love. And this perfect relationship between the Father, Son, and the Spirit has existed before even time did. And so maybe we walk away from this going, answering the question, what am, I, what am I called to make? What am I called to contribute? And who, who am I called to love and to walk with? And, and you know what's hard about this one, form for friendship, is that it takes time. It takes margin. It takes pursuit. It takes forgiveness. Because this just in, we're going to wrong each other. It takes being able to see things from another point of view or at least being willing to forgive people for not seeing yours. All of those are embodied in what it means to be formed for friendship, relationship, connection with other people. So, so this is my 10-second um, life group plug. <laughs> life groups aren't just a good idea, they're a God idea that you were created to walk with people, not just in isolation with God. There, it's in the lobby. I encourage you, sign up today. So, so we started by saying that knowledge of the image of God in us leads to flourishing for us, that all of these are held in, in both tension and in recognition of the nature that God's placed inside of us. We're created to create. We're wired to work. We're formed for friendship. Those are all really, really good things. But here's the danger. Here's the danger. Okay, so stick with me. Three minutes, we're going to land the plane, okay? If we do not recognize that we carry the image of God and that it's attached to every single one of these things, we will turn one of those things into a God for us. And so look at, look at what's up on the board. And you tell me, are these all connected to some of the most drastic and fundamental forms of idolatry that we have seen since the dawn of creation? I will find my worth in what I create so I make a name for myself. I'll be different. I'll make things so people will know me. I'll find my worth and my identity in what I produce and the way that I work. And I'll gain wealth and I will um, be either a workaholic or maybe I'll go the other direction and I will just be sloth, right? I'm just going to relax the whole time. We, we turn this into an idol, do we not? And love, romance. I mean, these are the things that we see people building an identity on. When I don't realize I carry the image of God, I will turn the image of God into a God. And I'll bow down and I'll worship it. See, if knowledge of the image of God leads to flourishing of humanity, a lack of knowledge is a weight that humanity simply cannot bear. Because we have to make meaning 
of the life that God has given us. I'm not going to elaborate on these at all, but I will give you a few just application points as we close our time together today. What does it mean to walk in the image of God? To live fully. We must dream passionately. What are the things God's put in your heart? What are the hopes that you have? Maybe it's hope of a future for your family, for you as an individual. Maybe it's, maybe it's hope for this nation that we live in. I mean, isn't it a beautiful, as we enter into tomorrow, I mean, come on, you guys. Martin Luther King Jr. was a creative. I have a dream that it doesn't have to continue to go this way. That maybe, he says, maybe my kids can be known by the content of their character rather than the color of their skin. That is a creative, not yet dream that Martin Luther King prays and speaks and works towards. And that is a beautiful, divine thing. What are the dreams he's placed inside of you? To live fully, we must dream passionately. To live fully, we must contribute positively. A word to the retired. You may no longer be working vocationally, but that doesn't mean that you are no longer called to contribute positively. Let that sit there. Finally, to live fully, we must love sincerely. So, if this is what it means to be human, the litmus test should be, well, how did Jesus do? Because if he fails our test of what it means to be human, we should probably either come up with different answers or a different test, yes? To dream passionately. Oh, man, are you kidding me? To have a love that conquers fear, to have a love that defeats hate, that is a creative act to live passionately, to contribute positively. Amen, yes, and amen. In his life, death, burial, resurrection, ascension, I would argue that Jesus contributed more positively to the development of society than anybody that has ever walked the face of the earth. To live fully, you must love sincerely. Does he fit the bill of what it means to live as a human? Yes, yes. So friends, Let's live in his way. Let's live with his heart. Let's receive the joy that he invites us to as we do that for his glory and for the good of his world that he dearly loves. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning I, I would ask for the person who's in this space and they're struggling with that question of meaning, purpose, design, would you speak really clearly into their lives? Would you remind us all today 
Father, that you made us in such a way where we were created to create, we were wired for work, and we were formed for friendship. And as human beings, with you at the center of it all, your image inside of us, as we walk with you, would you allow us to take up the mantle of our God-given calling to both reflect you and to represent you in your great world. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. And all God's people said, amen. Hey, can you thank Sherry for helping me preach today?